Apparently sometime in the middle of 2017, I noticed that some random dude on the internet named Vadim was liking and resharing some of the stuff I write. Within a few months, I realized he lived in NYC, where I'm from, but worked for a company in Fort Worth, where I lived at the time. We met up at a hotel and had a free breakfast and shot the shit about life. About a year later, we ended up being co-workers at that company. I lasted maybe eight months there, none too spectacularly. He was there probably 2.5 years. Now we're both gone from there, but remain friends, so we had this conversation on episode 22 of my show here. Most of this is about feedback, authenticity, work-life balance, and imposter syndrome. There was actually 8 minutes and 44 seconds at the beginning where we were discussing penis necklaces, but I took that out because, well, vague notions of professionalism. Then there were about 3 minutes and 51 seconds at the end where we were gossiping about people you probably don't know, so I took that out too. What's left is still fun though, so let's get to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that pretty much everyone feels imposter syndrome at, to different levels, right? Different degrees, different times, depending on exactly what they're doing. But I think that um, to a degree, we all sort of feel incompetent at some point because, especially anytime you're trying something new, you're gonna feel somewhat incompetent, right? You might be optimistic about it, but you kind of feel like I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? But yet. Obviously, you don't want other people to find you out because, God forbid, right, um, someone else thinks that you don't know what you're doing. So I do feel like like all of us feel this way at times. I'm the kind – I, you know, and I also feel like at some level um, it's dependent on one's inherent personality. I mean I'm the kind of person who inherently feels like, oh, my God, I never know what I'm doing. Am I going to be found out? But – the way that I deal with it is I tend to listen to what other people are telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm getting good feedback uh, about whatever I'm doing, then I think to myself, okay, I must be doing something right. And let me think about what is it that I'm doing right. And invariably, I go back to what I feel my strengths are. And I focus on that. Um, cause when I think about my strengths and my weaknesses, I mean, I think I'm a self-aware person, but I get that everybody thinks that they're self-aware. Um, I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses and I feel, let's say less incompetent, less of an imposter syndrome when syndrome, when I'm focusing on my actual strengths, you know? So yeah. that's really the only way to combat it. I feel for me. Right. I agree broadly with that. I would say like. Uh, the self-aware thing is an interesting point because it's like kind of that whole like woke culture thing too, where I feel like everybody thinks they're self-aware. So then, does inherently does it inherently have like less value if everyone perceives that about self, you know? Um, but <clears throat> one thing I was gonna say too is like you brought up the feedback thing. I think feedback is obviously like super powerful if done right. I think at a lot of places that you can end up working or contracting or even in personal relationships, like it's not done as properly as it could be. So what do you think the deal there is like, 
professionally, I feel like it's kind of viewed as like a soft skill and we realize it's important, but we kind of dismiss it personally is a little different. So like two things, why do you think maybe feedback is not, um, you know, given that successfully in a chunk of time. And then like what, uh, when you are getting feedback, like what makes it good for you? And that, that sounded like a sex question, but <laughs> what, what makes it like, what makes it stand out? Cause some people are like, you know, you got to play to my ego, but like having done stuff with you, I feel like you're, totally capable of being told like this part is awesome but this part sucks and not everybody is like that so like what does good feedback look like to you and then why do you think people struggle with it yeah well so before i even like get into that you know as as you were talking about feedback and and you know there's a there's a really strong tie-in to imposter syndrome as as well um which is that if you think about why we why we why we feel like imposters a lot of the time, it stems from I think to a large degree fear, right? right. It's fear of how we're going to be viewed, and that ties into feedback. So we fear that negative feedback. So it all ties in together in that regard. So you know, as far as what I think is good or effective feedback, I mean, I you know, frankly, I think a lot of the best practices out there are best practices for a reason. Um, I think it should be timely. I think it should be specific. Um, it's always great. It's always, you know, kind of stroking the ego to hear, hey, great job, you know, great job. Uh, what about it was great, you know? Right. And listen, I'm the kind of person, I'm on record saying this to pretty much every manager that I've ever had, which is like, I don't even want to hear your negative feedback. Just give me everything positive, right? I actually, you know, I know you said I'm the kind of person who who takes negative feedback or critical feedback, whatever you want to call it. I still see it as negative, let's be honest. Right. Um, you know, I, that I can process it well, you know, like a professional adult. But the truth is, is that I I really take it to heart. Um, and, and it is admittedly a struggle for me, uh, to deal with critical feedback. I'm, you know, like anyone else, obviously I'm much more capable <laughs> and eager to get positive feedback. So for me, I will say this, and this is maybe just me. I know that a best practice actually is don't do feedback sandwiches, right? You know, where right, you start right. with positive and then negative and then positive again. That actually works for me because I feel like I can take that negative feedback well when it's couched along with that positive feedback. Yep. Um, that's me. Um, and I'm talking about within the same conversation too, because obviously I think what a, a common other, you know, a common general mistake that perhaps managers or anyone gives regarding feedback is they focus on either positive you know, predominantly simply because they themselves are so uncomfortable giving feedback because it can often feel, it usually does feel really uncomfortable for the person giving critical feedback, right? Um, but, you know, or, or they focus, you know, or they are the kind of person who just constantly focuses on what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, and they focus on the negative feedback. So neither one of those is acceptable. Um, you know, the other thing that I'll say about feedback that, off, you know, that I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot is that I'm a believer that in general, don't give feedback unless it's asked for. Right. Now, 
I think there are exceptions. I think that certainly if you are a manager of someone, you know, you want to give that feedback. That's kind of part of your job as a manager and you have to be able to do that well. But if you, assuming that you're not a manager of someone, maybe you're a coworker, maybe you're a friend or whatever, I don't want to hear your feedback unless I'm asking for it because you probably don't really understand my career or just general life aspirations, my goals or, or anything like that. So what are you giving me feedback about exactly? It's more about you than it is about me in those cases. Right. hundred percent. Like no context, low context feedback for sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing you said at the beginning that I think, you know, you see this in best practice a lot, but it's still personal and professional. It's never executed on super well. It's like vague versus specific. It's like you have so many freaking jobs or projects that you do where someone will be like, good job, great job on that project. And you're like, oh, what specifically? And they're like, great job on that project. <laughs> and it's like... Right. That stuff to me is never helpful. Um, it's nice to hear, obviously, but it's never like super helpful in terms of knowing what to do on the next thing you have to deal with. Um, what uh, well, the other thing you were saying in there was uh, what's funny is when I came out of college, I did Teach for America, and I was in Houston ISD, and I had never been to Texas. I was like, a little snotty kid from the Northeast corridor. Right. And, um, I had never really thought about issues like feedback and shit. And I remember when we got trained. So this is like summer. Oh, three. So it's like fucking 17 years ago or something. But I remember when we got trained, one of the modules was like doing parent teacher conferences and the whole, Houston school district model for parent teacher conferences was about the compliment sandwich or the feedback sandwich. That was it. It was like, say a positive thing about their child, say a negative thing, say another positive thing. That was like their whole model. They had like six pages of this book on it. Right. And everybody in the room was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds logical. And it's actually like, it is probably if you're nervous about giving uh, critical feedback, which most human beings probably are, it is probably the easiest way to deliver um, because you know you're going to put something uh, positive in the middle or two positives or however you do it. So it is probably like it takes some of the stress away from you as the deliverer of feedback, which I think is helpful. But I would not. Uh, the whole thing is like, I think for as much as we talk about it and as much as like ink is spilled about it, I think still a lot of people are not very good at it. Uh, well, you know, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with that, but you know, partly I think why they're not very good at it is because this, yes, like I agree that there's all these tips out there. They are best practices and they are generally, like I said, good practices. But here's the thing about feedback, and I'm going to use an example here. Yep. Um, I used to work at Prudential. I did internal communications there. And I had somebody above me, um, not my boss, but, you know, it's a matrix organization. Somebody above me tried to convince me to write an internal article about giving and receiving feedback based on generational differences. Okay. And I'm like, I don't want to do this article. I think this is counterproductive. I, yep. I, I don't think that this is going to accomplish the goals you want to do. And they're like, well, no, Vadim, just write the, just write the damn article. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I did not write it. 
Um, I, I somebody else eventually wound up writing it. But the reason I didn't want to write it is because you're basing giving feedback on generational stereotypes, some of which aren't even true. And even if they are true, they are just stereotypes. Feedback is ultimately about individual preferences. And so as a manager, you don't give feedback to somebody who's a millennial in a certain way, just because they're a millennial, you get to know that person and you give feedback based on, you know, that person's working style and personality and preferences. And if you don't know how someone likes to get feedback, just ask the person. You know, you might not get a completely honest answer, you know, let's be real, but at least it's a start and you're starting the conversation. And I think that people actually would appreciate just being asked, listen, how do you want to get feedback, especially if it's critical? Like, what is the best way for me to convey that to you? You know, it shows it shows it's about the relationship more than the, you know, this transactional nature about here's what you need to fix kind of thing. Yep, We had a. We had a client where we overlapped and I remember they wanted like generational differences article about learning, um, like conveying learning in a matrix hierarchical organization. Right. And they, you know, I think we were doing five generations. So like silent boomer X millennial Z would probably be the five. Right. So I forget, I think I worked on like one draft of it and then somebody else took it and I took it back. I forget how it moved through where we were, but like, I just remember to your point and then I'll ask a question about it. It's like anything with like learning or communication or conveyance of an idea or feedback or whatever, like to exactly what you said, it's all about how the, receiver wants to receive it like it doesn't being 25 versus 65 doesn't matter as much as like the style that the person wants to receive information in in my opinion so i just remember with that client like i was trying to convey that in my drafts like hey you have to focus on the individual and we kept getting ironically feedback that was like oh no we want stats on like when boomers were born and like what how they want to learn and then how x want and it's like dude i mean that stuff is important in terms of like maybe having a thirty-five thousand level thirty-five thousand foot level framework for how people might be but it's like when we over focus on that we have like we lose the individual so like that was my broader question is do you think some of the generational assumption stuff has gone too far at this point, or are you still like, are you still good with those types of articles and content? I hate those types of articles and content. (laughs) Um, I have a side gig that I do um, organizing Disrupt HR uh, in New York, and we get pitches for presentations all the time from speakers wanting to talk about, here's how to do performance management or learning or whatever with millennials or this generation or this generation. I turn them down all the time. First yeah. of all, and it's not be- and it's not because I personally don't agree with what the person is saying. That's okay. I, I mean, there's room for disagreement. It is disrupt HR. There's room for disagreement. There should be disagreement. I just feel that everybody's heard this before. People are rolling their eyes for very good reason because 
at the heart of it, I think we all know that generational stereotypes are just that. There are too many people within every generation that frankly violate those stereotypes. And when there's enough people that, that, that do that, you kind of have to question, well, what are we doing here? And if you're offering advice that is based on, you know, um, certain characteristics that happen to be prevalent in the generation, um, what about all those people that it's not going to work for? Right. 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 I think, you're, like I said, I think it's just better off trying to address people as the individuals that we are. And I really think it's, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of all, of, you know, just that notion of individualization is part of a larger trend within work, right? It used to be that, um, you know, the focus was just even in recruiting, right? Like, let's, here's our company's requirements. Here's our list of bullets. Like, you know, you as a candidate should feel honored if we pick you, you right. know, to, to interview or to interview or whatever. Um, and now, especially in today's low unemployment economy, um, you know, there's more of a focus on the candidate experience. Like 30 years ago, who was talking about the candidate experience? They're like, are you kidding me? Um, but now um, it's that individual candidate that matters. So I, you know, I, I think overall that's a good, that's a good trend. I mean, I do think that, you know, you were talking about a pendulum before. I think that in some cases in terms of work, maybe that pendulum is swinging too far where be it candidates or employees, we feel like, um, work has to be this grand exercise in self-actualization. And unless you're reaching some state of nirvana and, you know, magical insights you're having at work and this, 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 again, experience of self-actualization, well, there must be something wrong with your job. Right. Um, so it does concern me that, you know, there are people who, you know, might be misinterpreting, at least in my view, what work is in those terms. But over, overall, I do I do think it's good that we're more focused on individual needs and aspirations and working styles and, and things like that. All right. So then that that'll lead to my last uh, professional type question. But do you <laughs> think that we broadly and obviously everybody's different, but do you think that we broadly take work too seriously or too personally as like an element of self? I feel like the push towards personalization, individualization, plus like the hustle culture, like the entrepreneurial focus culture. I think too many people are giving work too big a bucket of the bigger picture of who they are as a human being. But maybe that's just me being cynical. So what do you... Do you think, and again, it varies by individual, but do you think that we're kind of like trying to self-actualize at scale too much from what you've seen or places you've had to read about in the different like editorial stuff you've done? I, so I do think that, you know, again, broadly speaking, I right. do think that uh, people do, um, I don't know if um, emphasize the role of work in their lives is really the, the right way to put it. It's not that work is not important. Um, it's just how it's viewed. And I think that, um, look, I mean, we spend, whether we're in the office or working remotely like you or I have for years, um, I think that we spend a lot of time of our daily activity focused on work. And so on one level, I get like you want your work to be fulfilling. You want to actually 
enjoy your day at the most basic level. But at the same time, it gets very easy to get so caught up in work. And I think there's, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, for for one thing, sometimes, quite frankly, it could be easier to focus on work than focus on um, all the stuff that's happening in your personal yep. life outside of outside of work. So it's like that stuff is always, always harder to tackle than work. Yep. Um, you know, Lori Rudiman, um, who we both know, right? Um, HR blogger, writer, thinker. She talks a lot about, you know, you can't fix work unless you fix your life first. Yep. And I believe that because we do bring ourselves to the office and this, this to work. And it's not about, you know, bringing your best self or, or real <laughs> self. Or authentic self. Yeah. yeah. And that's not even what I, yeah, that's not even what I'm talking about. Right, but not at all. Yeah, you bring like, you bring all your shit from your regular life into work, consciously, yep. unconsciously, right? Um, there is no work self and not, and, and, and personal self. It's all one self. So I do feel like, you know, we try to, as much as possible, um, control our work or shape our work in a way that, um, or, or just focus on that in ways be, that, you know, take away from our personal lives or, or take us away from our personal lives. So I think that that's one reason. But I also just think that, you know, because so much of our lives and let's face it, our livelihoods depend on work. I mean, you need to work to make money. Yep. So there's naturally anxiety about that. And this goes back, you know, full circle to kind of what we talked about earlier, which is I think that so many people, all of us, all of us to a degree, work from a sense of a fear and anxiety. And I think that we're constantly trying to shift those scales so that we work more from a place of, um, I, I guess, you know, positivity right. um, and, you know, just really wanting to accomplish cool things at work, like even in my current job, right? Um, I think that there's a balance there, like, Part of me is worried about, especially since I'm still new to the role, like messing up, doing, you know, just just not doing things effectively or just basically not showing my worth or value. But then another part of me is like, this job's really cool. Like, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm excited about that. So there's always this tension and pull between the two. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in um, in, in the side of you, at least for a personality like mine that, you know, I'll admit it typically looks at the glass half, uh, half empty. Right. Um, or is it half full? Wait, well, whatever. I look at the glass. Yeah. I look at the glass half empty. Listen, I'm yeah. a sophisticated European. I'm not, <laughs> I don't always know your American colloquialism. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so I, you know, I do think in, you know, when we think about work, um, and we think about the role that work plays in our lives, it's almost like we see work as, um, you know, playing two, too great of an influence in our lives. And I think it really is important to step back and, and um, look at your pride, you know, your life outside of work and, and try to improve that because that will carry over to your work rather than think that you're going to improve your work life and that that will carry over into your personal life. I think that is less likely than the former. I think it almost never goes that way. Although Probably the very rich, um, which is a category that we don't necessarily belong to, the very, the very rich might think that the more you throw into work, the better your life output is 
just because uh, I think their worldview and psychology is different than whether you want to call it 1% versus 99% or whatever terminology for equality, inequality you want to use. I just feel like the biggest issue there is like those people probably do tend to lead with work, but in the sense of they've seen outputs from it that are at a level greater than most of us. So I could see why that would logically be something they might put number one, but for a quote unquote average lay person, I agree with you and Lori that I feel like you can't fix work unless you fix your life. That's an input into work, you know? Yeah. But don't you, but don't you feel like to an extent too, I mean, the, the, the larger problem is that, you know, putting aside how you might feel as an individual and steps that you can take as an individual, I think that the fact still remains culturally and generally, um, we, we lionize people who, you know, might work, whose life just totally focuses on work, you know, like, like Elon Musk, right? Who basically, you know, doesn't sleep, barely eats so he can work. And we're like, well, great. Well, look at his company and look at what a success that is. But, you know, there's the other side of it, which is that, and and, and I do believe that this cliche is actually true, that when you, you know, and it, it is admittedly like a huge cliche, but when you are on your deathbed or when you're near the end of your life, let's say, Nobody ever looks back and says, damn, like, I wish I would have spent, you know, an extra five hours a day in the office, you know. No, they look back and say, you know, I really wish I would have spent more time with my spouse, with my child, with my loved ones, with my friends. Right. Like, I I read probably three or four years ago, I was in San Diego for this wedding, and I remember I read this New Yorker article about, like hospice nurses in Queens and Brooklyn. And I got this fucking nasty sunburn lying on the beach reading this article because it was like so good. And I kind of like was vaguely aware that I was probably getting a sunburn. And, you know, it's some probably 15,000 word article. And I was like, man, I want to finish this because it's all about like they're with all they're with people from all these different socioeconomic levels and walks of life in their final days and moments. Right. And so they can actually speak to like, these are what these people are wanting for longing for whatever. And it's never work. It's never like spreadsheets or projects or even the acquisition of more wealth. Right. It's never any of that shit. It's always like, relationships like people that they lost touch with got away from like that's what people when they're cognizant that they're gonna die and they don't know what's next that's what they're thinking about but you're right we do lionize people in their prime working years earning years who are supposedly like killing it and we assign work ethic as the hot like almost the highest input to that lifestyle. And I would agree. I think it probably is in most cases, but I also saw like pictures of like Jeff Bezos at the Super Bowl with like Lizzo and like partying with like Michael Bay, the film director. So it's like, I think there's a level where those guys and it's still predominantly men. I think they work really hard. I'm not doubting their work ethic, But I also think 
we might be inflating that narrative. Like with Elon Musk, it's probably accurate because I've seen tons of stuff on that. But I think some of these guys were like, oh, we like deify them, lionize them. And that we always start with like their work ethic is incredible. And I'm sure it is, but I just don't know if we really have like the full picture of it. Like maybe like Elon Musk has like three kids. Bezos has like four kids. Like, there's got to be something else there that's like helping balance them or whatever. And I just don't think reporters and people that analyze it from afar really like fully have that picture, you know? So it's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think that, look, at the end of the day, you never really know what anyone is, what, what right. anyone's you know private life is like, or certainly you never know what's inside their minds too. Like we just yeah. don't know. Right. But, but but the I mean listen the fact remains it's it's such an e you know it's such an easy story to tell though you know it becomes yeah. very easy to say like this person works a lot so much yeah. of it is about perception and perception management you know perception is reality in many yep. cases yeah. that's what it is I listened to uh, some guy who's like a MIT robotics dude um, yesterday I was like doing errands and he was on that Joe Rogan podcast i listened to it for like 30 minutes right and he was saying um that he met musk like three or four times to talk about like different shit related to like tesla and automation right and he said like all the stuff about work ethic is true to his knowledge but again you know he's only met him three to four times so it goes to your point we don't completely know anybody so one thing he said that was interesting though is he's like you have to conceptualize it around like passion too is that like elon musk does that in part because he's like truly passionate about like reinventing how we think about automotive shit and like you know what cars can do what that could do for the environment like he cares enough about that that he is willing to throw 130 hours a week at it or whatever right whereas most people that have like a cubicle job or a project management job or a spreadsheet job or whatever even if you really like elements of your job you're probably not super passionate about like the end output because you probably don't even control it in some at some level so like that work ethic is part of the narrative and you know i don't want to bring in like passion and purpose because i feel like some of that's bullshit but if you find something that you're like oh man i want to reinvent this area that i can control and then you're trying to dedicate 125 hours a week to it i can kind of see it because the passion is there right i still think people need balance in their lives but i just think it's hard for like an average worker to understand that degree of passion because a lot of times we don't feel it you know we might feel it on certain projects or clients or whatever but i don't think we universally feel it and we're like always moving towards it you know yeah no i totally agree and i'm happy you mentioned that because what one one thing that i the impression i don't want to leave just from from you know my own um you know what i was saying about this was that i i'm not necessarily say i'm not I'm not saying at all that Elon Musk or people like him who, um, you know, work a lot um, and in some people's views overwork. Right. I'm not saying that that is a bad thing, right. because right. like you said to him, this is 
you know, probably his, his passion, I'm sure it is. And, and this is what he chooses to do with his life. My issue, my complaint is that that is held up as a standard. And right. I don't feel like it is a fair standard. I think it's perfectly okay for an employee to come into, um, you know, come into the office or just do a day of work, whatever that job is. I don't care if you're a janitor, um, an accountant, um, you know, a marketing manager, whatever. You know, go in, you know, your, your goals are just, let me just do my job and then yep. let me go home. And this is just a means to make money for me so I can support a lifestyle for me and my family. That is perfectly okay. And I don't feel like as a society in general, we necessarily make that okay. We pay lip service to it, yep. but I don't really feel like enough people actually believe that. I think that publicly and privately, we judge people based on this. We're like, oh, you're only a janitor, you know? We right. elevate people in other careers simply because they are in those careers. And if, and if you don't have a passion for something and you're doing that, let's say you're in a job and you're not passionate about it, then something is wrong. Something has to be wrong. And that goes back to my earlier point where we seek self-actualization from a job where if we're not passionate about every single task that we're doing 24-7 or whatever, eight hours a day, however long you're at work, then something must be wrong. And my, my whole philosophy is no, nothing is necessarily wrong. I think it's not, you know, we're just expecting either too much or, or the wrong things from work. And you can be happy if you're not Elon Musk. Yeah, 100%. And I think I agree with you a thousand times over that that's what gets lost, right? It's like we normalize the, the high end of the spectrum and it's like, yo, it's perfectly fine to go and do um, go and do your job and leave and it's a means to an end and you foster positive relationships there and you turn around some cool projects and help other people make money and, you know, people, when you leave that job, because you will, um, you know, people say positive things about you like that. All that shit is fine. And it's like, it's totally normal. And I agree. We don't need to be normalizing like the insane end of the spectrum, you know, or judging based on it. Cause that's kind of where I feel like we get into some flawed, like virtue signaling type discussions, you know? Yeah. Totally uh, great. Totally. All right, so the last thing I was going to ask you is, and it's kind of like on the spot, so, you know, you don't have to have some other worldly okay. answer to it, but, um, okay, so what, you can deal with this personally or professionally or both or whatever, what, what do you think some of the biggest uh, differences between, like, your 20s, 30s, and now, like, a little bit into your 40s are, just in terms of, like, uh, personal like learning or development or like shit you've experienced like normally the standard response is people are like oh I was a mess in my 20s I was still like a mess for a part of my 30s and then I started to pull shit together a lot of people actualize that through like family or kids or whatever uh, some through relationships some through work so that's like kind of the standard narrative i would probably say like myself like definitely a mess in part of my 20s most people would probably say that but like <clears throat> are there things that as you've gotten older um you've kind of like embraced more or thought about more or thought about differently just like any 
hot takes on the last 15 or so years. <laughs> Feel yeah. free to offer them, you know? Yeah. And so for what it's worth, by the way, I'm 43 now. Um, and I'm still a mess in many ways, and that's okay. Um, I will say this. I, you know, when I think back on my 20s and even my 30s too, what I really um, just wish that I had been doing then that I didn't realize for whatever, for whatever reason then is just I wish I had um, the courage to just be more of myself or my best self, you know, whatever. Uh, I think that where I've gotten to in life personally, professionally, I mean, it's all, I, all, I think of it all personally, but, you know, personally and professionally actually has been a result of, of my personality um, and, and the way that I interact with people and the relationships I formed. But when I was younger, I didn't necessarily interact with people the way that I do now. Um, I tried to be a quote unquote professional, like when I'd craft emails, when I'd get on the phone with people, right? This, it wasn't really me. It was this conception of what I thought I should be like, you know, whether it was um, working out of right out of college at a travel PR firm for a little bit, or whether it was working even at a magazine and and reaching out and talking to all sorts of business executives, particularly, you know, I spoke to people, I would interview people in the C-suite, and I would get intimidated by them, and I would try to sound like as if I were some reporter from the New York Times, and in my head, what that reporter looked like and how that reporter spoke to people, right? And it wasn't until I would say my late 30s that I just sort of put all that crap aside and just embraced, you know, what I felt were my better qualities, which um, isn't that person at all, isn't that quote unquote formal person. And I think that, I mean, I know that too is pretty cliched advice, you know, just be more yourself. But I do feel like we are typically happier people when we are um when our real selves align with our best selves, frankly, right? And it's just that in the past, I had a, I knew what my real self was, but I had a misconception about what my best self should be. Um, and I don't have that anymore. Um, so that's kind of what I wish that I had done differently earlier. And that's kind of how I see my evolution, I guess, right? I'm like less scared of saying the wrong thing or whatever. Um, yeah, I just find myself more, you know, having better relationships these days, being able to bond with people more again, just friends, colleagues, or just, you know, professional acquaintances by not focusing on, you know, trying to create this image that is really just so not aligned with who I am.